Well, Dr. Young, how are you doing on this afternoon over in the UK? Okay, we're in the middle of a plumbing crisis with a, a huge blockage in the kitchen. So otherwise, the day's fine. <laughs> Howdy there, dear listeners. This is your host, Matt. Today, I was joined by Dr. Sarah Young. Dr. Young is an associate professor of Russian and program coordinator for languages and culture in the region at University College London. We talked about her upcoming book, which is titled Writing Resistance, Revolutionary Memoirs of Slieshelberg Prison. We talked about carceral literature, why she prefers that term, what is it, what are kind of the touchstone pieces of carceral literature. And we talked about her mapping projects, which are so fascinating in their own right. So a lot of interesting stuff, and we really think you'll enjoy it. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Young, hello. Do we understand correctly that you have a book in in the works? Yes, I'm uh, just finishing off the, the, the final version of a manuscript called Writing Resistance, Revolutionary Memoirs of Schlüsselberg Prison, 1884-1906. That's coming out with UCL Press next year. Fantastic. As somebody who knows Russia, I know that there are you know, several famous prisons in Russia. I, ones that come to mind are Kresti in St. Petersburg. There's also Matroskaya Tishina in Moscow. And so I, I was a little bit surprised to hear that Schlüsselberg was the subject of this book. So you know, tell us about Schlüsselberg and Schlüsselberg Prison. Why did you choose this prison of, of the many that you have to choose from uh, across Russia? I mean, of course, yeah, there are there are many, many prisons and many uh, extraordinary texts about these prisons written by former prisoners. Schlüsselberg is, is, I think, a unique place in Russian prison history because it, it had a history of roughly 200 years of being used as a prison from 1711, when uh, just after Peter the Great uh, finally conquered the island where the fortress stands, which is just on Lake Ladoga, just outside St. Petersburg, at the opposite end of the River Neva. And it was used as a sort of a top secret place of incarceration for the most dangerous state prisoners. And in effect, in the 18th century, for the other victims of political intrigue. So this is where Johann Antonovich, the deposed emperor, uh, Ivan IV, was incarcerated and ultimately murdered during an attempt to release him during um, Catherine the Great's reign. It's where Nikolai Novikov was, was incarcerated. It's where, in the, if you go into the 19th century, uh, Mikhail Bakunin spent three years there. The Polish freedom fighter Lukasinski spent 38 years there. He was a sort of record-breaking prisoner. So it has this long history of being this extraordinary place of fear and terror in the sort of Russian carceral <laughs> imagination. And then, after the assassination of Alexander II, it had by that stage fallen into disuse, but it was reopened. A new prison was built there in order to incarcerate the revolutionaries, the ones who weren't executed. And quite a number of populist revolutionaries ended up in there between 1884-1906. The most famous one that we tend to remember now is Vera Figna, who spent 20 years there. Many other of the prisoners also spent very, very long periods of time there. 20, 21 years was a fairly standard sentence. It's it's a particularly interesting place as far as I'm concerned because within this period there were 68 prisoners who spent time in the fortress. Some of them were sent there straight just for execution, others uh, for to be incarcerated. 
And of the ones who survived, only about 30 survived. The death rate in the first couple of years was horrendous. And of the ones who survived, more than half wrote memoirs. And again, Vera Fignes is the most, is the most famous one. But there are many, many other memoirs. I started discovering these memoirs. Hardly any of them have been translated. And they are just fascinating documents by a really extraordinary group of people who went through a huge amount of suffering and just showed the most amazing resilience to survive and basically turned the tables on their, on their, their jailers. And eventually, to a certain extent, they were sort of really running the show in the prison. The movie that came to mind to me is uh, Bridge on the River Kwai, where the the imprisoned actually have certain levers of power over their jailers. That's a fascinating concept. But give, give us a sense of how how large this this prison was. So you, I mean, it sounds like not really that many people were there. No, the maximum number of prisoners was 40 at any one time. Whoa. I think, in fact, not all cells were always used. So I think, I think 38 was probably the maximum number that was ever, ever there at one time. They had between them over about 110 guards guarding them. So that the, these were considered extremely dangerous people. So this is the Tsarist equivalent of like a maximum security kind of elite prison. And so you, you said that, you know, such a high proportion of them wrote memoirs. Did it make it tough to choose, you know, which ones to read and translate? Or you just kind of probably sampled multiple before you decided which ones you had absolutely had to translate? I mean, I I ended up reading them all, (laughs) Um, which is quite, uh, you know, sort of quite harrowing at times, but also really interesting. There's all sorts of things in all of them. And for example, Michal Frolinko's memoir, he was really interested in gardening. Eventually they had allotments and were allowed to grow their own food. And he has hugely detailed descriptions of of preparing the allotments, the food they grew, paragraphs and paragraphs about compost. (laughs) To some people, that's fascinating, not necessarily to me, it must be so. Uh, But it gives you a sort of idea of the variety of, of things there are in these memoirs. Somehow, the whole book came to me overnight. I just thought, actually, why don't I translate these memoirs? And the, the three that I wanted to include, I, I knew immediately which ones it was. It was just an instinctive reaction, instinctive for various different reasons in each case. A sort of, yeah, there was never any doubt in my mind. I mean, for example, you know, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave out Ludmilla Wolkenstein's memoir because she was the only other woman in the prison apart from Vera Figna. And she's she's so little known now as a sort of female revolutionary, but deserves to be better known. And hers was also the first memoir to be written from this group. And so these prisoners, I mean, to what extent did they interact with each other when they were, you know, simultaneously incarcerated there? I mean, did they, you know, have discussions of politics and philosophy? Were they able to interact uh, massively or were they largely kept in solitary confinement? And what was that like? The whole, the whole idea of the prison was complete solitary confinement with no interaction between the prisoners whatsoever. And that, that persisted for about two years. They were communicating by tapping on the walls, as Russian prisoners do, and you read about this in memoirs from from the Decembrists up to the Gulag. But they weren't ever allowed to see each other. They they were taken out to exercise separately. There was no proper interaction whatsoever. And this was the period when the, the mortality rate was extraordinarily high. Many of the prisoners succumbed to severe mental health problems, and some of them just, from which some of them never recovered. And eventually, the I think. 
the, the rate of attrition was so great that the authorities realised that they were completely unsustainable. So at this point, about, about two years in, things started to change and they started to be sort of allowed to exercise together and associate. And then it gradually got sort of more and more free. They sort of fought for more and more rights of association. Eventually, they're sort of in their, in their exercise yards, delivering lectures to each other, having political debates. That's fast. Writing journals, you know, sort of exchanging um, articles, uh, translating things, doing all sorts of, you know, sort of intellectual activities together. Wow, so you say that things changed because they were unsustainable. That's a, such an interesting phrasing. I mean, it's not because maybe they were unethical. Who, who was the instigator for for the changes? Was it the guards who say, well, you know, this isn't good? Or did you get the sense that it was some warden or the head of the prison? Or Oh, no, it was definitely from higher up, from the authorities in Petersburg. The real moment, I think, when it was quite clear that things had to change was when one of the prisoners, Mikhail Grachevsky, committed suicide in 1887. He was actually a second suicide at that point, but it was a particularly horrific death. He set himself alight with kerosene from a lamp. This was the point when the the, the authorities in Petersburg realised that this you know, that they really could not continue in the same way any longer. And at this point, the the fortress commandant, the superintendent of the guards, were both dismissed and and replaced. And a sort of more you know, more relaxed regime started from then. And so this book this book is a not is a nonfiction piece, correct? Yes. Um, and so. But there is this whole idea of carceral literature, and carceral—that's that's fiction, right? That's that's, or or or, or does non <laughs> or is carceral literature also the nonfiction written about you know carceration? I mean, is the term that broad, or how do you? I I, I prefer the, the term carceral literature because it's broad and not exclusive. Because when it comes to survivors of the Gulag, for example, and the and the sort of works they wrote. Yes, there is fiction by Shalamov, Solzhenitsyn, many others. There are also really extraordinary memoirs. There are also works that sort of cross the boundaries between fiction and memoirs. And indeed, one could, one could describe Shalamov's well, stories yeah, as those. So it's difficult to sort of pin down. If you, if you start talking about fiction, what's included and what isn't? Certainly when it comes to memoirs, people writing memoirs many years after their incarceration, they're, they're constructing a story in any case it may be one that is based on the experiences they had, but they're nevertheless deciding, you know, they're making decisions about what, what goes in there, what, what doesn't. The process is not so dissimilar from a fictionalised work in any case. So I prefer a sort of broad term that, that will encompass all these works. And then as well, I start thinking about all the works on Russian prison and exile written by outsiders. By, by people who weren't incarcerated. I'm thinking of th- things like uh, Chekhov's Sakhalin Island, for example. Would you exclude that from carceral, right. the, the term carceral literature? No, absolutely not. No, no, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Because, right, there is, you know, even in the fiction, there, I mean, there is this idea that, yes, this is a fictional story, but I, I mean, I'm playing with the margins and exaggerating a little bit, but I'm obviously trying to give you a very sure. true and real sense of, of what happened there. And so it makes me think, though, if you if you look at somebody like Shalamov, who has his Kolima stories, 
And some of them are, you know, pretty clear exaggerations and didn't happen. Others are kind of closer to, I mean, hey, this, this, because this was plausible, this could have happened. Are there, you know, historians who try to really dig into these stories and separate, okay, this, this is closer to the truth. This is not, who kind of go and debunk a lot of these memoir like stories? There's a lot of quite, I don't want to say dubious, <laughs> uh, trying try, try to think of the right word. I think there's a real difficulty for historians looking at these types of works because of the sense of fictionalization and even you know it with straight you know, st- straightforward memoirs so called they are sort of often distant from from the events they're sort of reliant on memory and and the particular decisions the authors made as I said so I think there's been a huge tendency to these texts as historical documents not always with the caution that, that they, sh- they should be used with, I think. And sometimes that has resulted in some sort of extremely partial and rather, rather dubious uh, argumentation. I mean, I think one of the things that's really, when it comes to the Gulag in particular, one of the things that's really important to, to remember is what a varied experience that was. You know, there were people working in, in the Sharashka as, as Solzhenitsyn uh, depicted right. in, in, in the First, first Circle. circle. The, you know, people working in mines in Kolyma, for example, their experience was massively, massively different. And then you know, on occasions you do get sort of historians saying, oh, well, there was you know, sort of picking out sort of milder experiences and saying, well, you know, the rest of it's all exaggerated. And to the contrary, people sort of look at looking at the experience of prisoners working in the mines in, in Kolyma and their memoirs, not that there are many and dismissing any other type of, of, of depiction of the gulag as being sort of exaggeratedly mild. The, the other thing that interests me about this idea of carceral literature is that it spans entire eras in, in history, because I think some people might be surprised to think that th- things going on in, in Dostoevsky's time are, are going to be of the same genre as something, you know, in, in, in a Stalinist gulag. I mean, how do you kind of conceptualize and justify that for, for, for yourself? I think it's worth saying that when it comes to gulag writing, a lot of the authors, and this is a rare thing on which Shalamov and Solzhenitsyn agreed, they sort of dismiss the the work of prisoners in previous eras, as particularly Dostoevsky, as as being much much milder, much, you know, not the same type of experience at all. And yet, I think both in the systems themselves and in the literature they produced, there's a huge amount of continuity. I mean, the, the continuities between the the, the imperial uh, carceral system and the, and the gulag, continuities of geography, similar practices, the sort of harsh penal culture that Judith Palo talks about in her work is is very much common to both. And so for both, you know, so indeed, imperial era, Soviet era, and post-Soviet, you know, Russia has a harsh penal culture. So there is a sort of there is a there is a continuity in the system and there is a great deal of continuity in the writing as well not least because they're responding to each other and looking at the works of the previous generations and thinking about you know what that says about them and sort of consciously building a tradition that brings in that puts their own writing in in the context of previous generations so for example the Schlüsselberg prisoners they tend not to refer to Dostoevsky very much apart from the fact that he was one of the writers they were never allowed to read in the prison. They talk about the Decembrists a great deal, and particularly the Decembrists Academy and the, the sort of the intellectual activities that, that they carried on as well. 
when it comes to Gulag, then there's an awful lot of reference to Dostoevsky and comparing that experience. But then again, when you get uh, prisoners in solitary confinement, like Yevgenia Ginsburg was, for example, Schlüsselberg and the, and the memoirs of Vera Figner and Nikolai Morozov and so on, they become they become the touchstone there. So there is this sort of continuity, and this is something that we see right up to the present day. And when Nadia Tolokanikova, a pussy riot, was in Right, prison, exactly, yes. yeah. She, you know, she talks about reading um, Marchenko's My Testimony. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, this is still going on. So, so this, this genre is not in the history books. I mean, it's con- continuing and there, there could, right, that, that's just a Absolutely. fascinating concept. It's, it, it's difficult to pinpoint an exact starting point because the Decembrists uh, memoirs mainly weren't published until the 1850s, 1860s. They mainly sort of coincided with with publication of Dostoevsky's Notes from the House of the Dead. So there's a sort of, uh, the sort of time gap there seems to sort of get squashed rather. It's difficult to sort of say exactly where the starting point is. But it's certainly in the modern r- Russian literary imagination, I think it is sort of between them, the Decembrists and Dostoevsky are, are the sort of starting point. I mean, there are also, you know, obviously one can sort of look back to Avakum, for example, but I think that is something somewhat different. Uh, and again, in any case, Avakum wasn't, wasn't published until the 1860s. Uh, so everything sort of started coalescing around that time. I think one of the things I've really noticed recently, and again, this is this, this Schlüsselberg memoirs have really brought this home to me, is that I think there are sort of two main ideas that work through these through this tradition. And the first is what we see in Dostoevsky, really, this whole, the, the idea of when one person is given power over another in this way, you know, that their cruelty and brutality sort of you know, basically is, 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 you know, comes to the fore. And I think that that idea of, the, of human morality is the, the sort of the fundamental subject uh, we see it in the 19th century. We also see it in Shalomov. And again, you know, despite the differences Shalomov sees between his own writing and Dostoevsky's, and despite their obvious stylistic difference, those, that is a similarity, I think. The other question, which is where the Schlüsselberg prisoners come in, is this idea of, of, of the legitimacy of the state and using the, the, the prison and the, 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 the prisoner's experience as a way of challenging that legitimacy. So it does become a part of the revolutionary movement. And that was one of the one of the reasons I think that the Schlüsselberg's prisoners' memoirs after the revolution very quickly became sidelined. Vera Figner's was sort of became a sort of the spokesperson for them all, and the rest of the memoirs were sort of quietly sort of pushed to one side because they, the message they have is is not particularly palatable. I think when I think of incarceration, I actually think of Foucault. Did you have this desire to kind of apply any other thinkers or, you know, literary traditions or philosophies from outside of Russia to your work just to help, maybe help you understand it better? I, I would not describe myself as a Foucauldian, and I'm not sure that, that Foucault is entirely applicable to the Russian situation for various reasons, not not least because of the sort of the absence of surveillance, which which characterizes an awful lot of the Russian penal yeah. system over the over the centuries. Actually, which is not true in the case of Schlüsselberg at all. Surveillance was absolutely central there. But I mean, apart from that, I mean, in its recent work, I've been also thinking about sort of questions of resistance, how you know, how sort of prisoner groups start to sort of work work together to challenge the legitimacy of the authorities. Uh, some particularly interesting work done on the prisoners on Robben Island in South Africa during the apartheid regime and in uh, the Mays prison in Belfast during the Northern, I- Northern Ireland Troubles. 
that have been actually quite sort of illuminating for thinking about you know how these prisoners in Schlüsselburg were you know came together as a group and started work you know sort of finding their own legitimacy and I think you know so the, you know those two examples of Robin Island and the maze are sort of really famous examples of your know, political prisoners and and you know the way that they have sort of you know, challenged their imprisonment and I think you know the Schlüsselburg prisoners ought to be sort of similarly uh you you as well known as those groups of prisoners. I, I, I want to ask about, you know, this, jo- this genre, you know, within Russia. Do you get the sense that people within Russia make this this distinction within their own literature so that there's like carceral literature as a separate genre and then there's uh, the, the rest of, of, of Russian literature just because my, my, my sense is that, 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 that they don't necessarily... No, I don't think so. I mean, this is you know, sort of this is something that I I think about as a scholar. You know, what I think about is the general reader. Uh, I don't think I would. You know, this you know, this literature has very much become part of the sort of general general sphere of literary culture in in Russia. You know, I think I think there's a sense of it's it's a very prominent theme within Russian literature, partly because of the the tendency at times to sort of to incarcerate well-read people intellectuals and and middle-class people and this is something that obviously happened in the 19th century it happened in the 20th century and it still happens today and so when 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 you start incarcerating people who who think about these things then they are going to sort of start you know sort of writing about it so it's become sort of a much more prominent theme within russian literature i think than than elsewhere but nevertheless, I think you're for you're for Russians reading who are reading Shalamov one week and going on to read I don't know Turgenev the next week or Pilyevin. I don't think they would sort of see it as a something separate or particularly different. I have these pieces of carceral literature that I like. We've already mentioned most of them, which is the Shalamov Kolyma stories and In the First Circle by Solzhenitsyn. What are, I mean, do you, what are the kind of touchstones of carceral literature that you would maybe recommend first and foremost to, you know, a Western audience who's interested in Russia, i.e. people like our listeners? Oh, I mean, there's so many I have favorites is a difficult word to use i find about about this sort of this sort of writing because some of it is quite it's 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 tough to read i mean shalomov obviously is 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 just so so much worth reading um i would i would recommend him to everybody even though he is you know he is one of the toughest reads as well at times and you know i know a lot of people and i'm i've, I've had the same experience of only being able to read two or three stories at a time and then needing to sort of put it put it down and walk away from it for a while Beyond Shalamov, what would I recommend? Yevgenia Ginsberg, I've already mentioned, and her her memoir is still, you know, sort of still one of the one of the best. I think it's uh, just just as a, a really sort of wonderful, actually, in a way, you sort of, you're, despite everything she goes through, such a wonderful celebration of life. Abram Turtz's voice from the chorus is the sort of you know, something that's very different, but it's still you know it is still very much in the you know in within that genre. And Andrei Sinyavsky, who was incarcerated in the sixties, and wrote this this book. I mean, he wrote a, effectively wrote a couple of books in in prison, although he didn't actually write them in prison. I mean, he he his, it's it's mainly constructed of letters he wrote to his wife while he was in prison. And they're on all sorts of subjects. On they're on literary criticism. He's you know, he's thinking about Russian history. It's, it's it's a very very varied. It's not a narrative. And then it's sort of interspersed with the voices of the prisoners uh, that he heard. And you're very very much like Dostoevsky writing down 
the, the sort of the language that he was listening to in the prison and that becomes part of his you know, uh, part of his narrative. So that's a really interesting, very, very unusual work, I think, that I'd, I'd, I'd recommend. I mean, obviously, your, can, your, your book, when it comes out... I could out. go for it. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, give any spoilers because obviously we want our listeners to, you know, to take a look at your book, you know, when, when it comes out. But today, if, you know, somebody were to go to Schleselberg, I had the opportunity. I lived in St. Petersburg for a year, but I actually never made it out there. I took the Elektrichka almost in that, to somebody's dacha directly in that direction, but didn't actually make it to the Schleselberg. Is there anything related to this history you're talking about still to see? I mean, is there a museum there? The reason that I bring this up is that, I mean, you have this history of mapping projects. Have you ever had a desire to do any mapping in, in, in Schleselberg? Yes. So I, yeah, this is where I started off thinking about Schlüsselberg really, because I, mean, I should, should preface this with saying I too have stayed, you know, lived in Petersburg and stayed in Petersburg many times, never actually been to the, to the fortress. And I was actually due to go this summer. And obviously this, was, this trip was cancelled, sadly, because of the pandemic. Uh-huh. I, I still hope to get out there sometime. There is, you know, there is the fortress is still there. the The, the prison is still there with a, with a museum in, and you can you can visit the cells where the prisoners lived. So it is still all there, and and you can visit it in the, in the summer months. It's not accessible in the winter. What's really started me thinking about this project, which relates to the sort of mapping in a slightly sort of tangential way. So I think thinking in in terms of the mapping about these traces of the past and. Traces of the past in real places and traces of literary literary images in on real places. And that's how I sort of started thinking about the mapping. And then when I was reading the Schlüsselberg memoirs, I started noticing two things really. One is that they're very careful about telling you which prisoners were in which cells and how they communicated between the cells so that you get a sort of a really sort of vivid picture of. The, the sort of arrangement of all the prisoners and how they're sort of interacting and sort of the sort of network they're building, even though they can't see each other. So that was one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is that uh, in a couple of the memoirs and in a couple of early secondary works by, um, by historians and revolutionaries writing about the fortress shortly after the prisoners left there, there's lots of references to people returning to the fortress I think this is um, Ivan Yuvachov, Daniel Harms's father, was actually one of these prisoners. Wow. Yeah, and he was he was only there for three years because he started suffering. Well, he appeared to be suffering from a religious mania. They described it, and he was he, he was removed from the prison and sent to, to exile on Sakhalin. But he wrote a um, memoir, a sort of memoir history of the fortress. And in the final chapter, I think it's in the final chapter of that, he revisits it after the prison has closed because there was about a gap of about a year when the populace, the remaining prisoners were transferred out. Some of them were freed and some of them were sent to Nyechin's card labour. And then in 1907, a new prison was built and a new group of prisoners came in, which were mainly Black Sea Fleet tenors. So it was then used as a prison again for the next 10 years. But there's these several memoirs where people you know, people revisit and go back and sort of walk around the prison as free people thinking about what happened. This seems to be a theme in gulag literature. It's something I've noticed elsewhere, this idea of retracing steps. And in fact, you know, I, I saw something on a project this morning. I've not watched the film, but a Czech project that's actually sort of made a film about the remains of gulag prison camps in, in Siberia. So there's a sort of, it's a sort of this idea of traces 
and the traces that these places leave and the traces of the, the imagination on the imagination of these places is something that it's quite intangible, but it sort of brings to my mind the same sorts of ideas as when I'm thinking about mapping. And it's this sort of how do you sort of you translate these intangible traces into something more real and concrete that people can then respond to. And it is very much about how people respond to it, I think, which is going to be different for different people. Sure. I mean, who do you feel like is the target audience for these maps? Is it scholars who are doing like, you know, Dostoevsky studies and are being careful? Or is it a much more general audience who, you know, you just want people to maybe look at these maps, maybe somehow print them out. And then as they're taking their trip to St. Petersburg, they can look at these buildings and kind of feel themselves part of the storylines and so on. I mean, is it both of those? Is it neither of those? When I started doing this, I was actually doing it, my primary audience was me. And I, I was sort of interested in what this would actually look like on a map and how that, you know, how, what that might tell me as a scholar and as somebody who loves Petersburg and you know, enjoys sort of walking around and sort of visiting sort of the, the apartment where the old woman lived. I'm and, right with and, you, so, Dr. Young, on yeah. that one. <laughs> it's, it's such fun. And I just wanted to sort of see, you know, how, how, what, what happens when you put it on a map and whether that can actually tell you anything more about what's going on in the novel. For me, it did. It told me a great deal about sort of how the space changes during the crime and punishment, for example, about the way that sort of after Raskolnikov sort of more or less recovered from his illness, things change. He's not noticing the city in the same way. We've got all these, all these references in parts one and two to all the sort of sounds and sights and the people he bumps into. There's none of that in parts three, four and five. It's just he's, he's almost blank in relation to the city. That's then, you know, sort of what, you know, what that actually means is another matter. But there's a sort of, so, so there are things I think you can discover by doing this. So well, I was my, my own primary audience in the first place, but then you know, sort of, I sort of realised that this did have use for other people. I think a lot of students have really responded to it very well, and I've you know, sort of used it with my own students. And a lot of my colleagues in various places have said as well that you know, sort of students absolutely love it and really sort of, it sets their imaginations on fire. Yeah, I get sort of really interesting things coming out of it. I, for one, if I had known about these maps when I had been in St. Petersburg, I probably would have used them. I mean, I, I do, you know, everybody goes to the, the Gogol uh, Nose Monument. And so I do know that there you know, were some city monuments, but to have kind of more of these uh, obscure places pointed out and to put it on a map, I mean, that, that, that's just so cool. And I think it has such applicability to, you know, for students. So I, I, I just wish more people knew about it. I am thinking about maps of, maps of gulag narratives. One thing I'm thinking about is sort of re- relating to this idea of traces that I mentioned. Something that I think I need to think about, that I, I need to check this, but my, my instinct is this is something that you see more in women's memoirs than men's. But lots of quite close discussions of journeys, uh, the, you know, the transport to the gulag seems to be a more prominent part of women's memoirs than men's to me. I don't, this may not be true. It may be just the Kalima Fellowship who, who, who all talk about the sort of the infamous Van Seven where you have Gideon Ginsburg's reciting poetry and so on. I think there's an idea that you have this sort of movement through the Gulag, because one of the other things I'm doing is building the Sakharov archive of Gulag narratives. I've turned that into a corpus of text that I can, I can interrogate for distant reading. So thinking about how these places are used and you're know, sort of connected in, by these journeys and perhaps mapping that to maybe something for the future. 
but that's a little a little way down the line at the moment. Well, we're, we're approaching the end of our time. So, Dr. Young, this has been just so enlightening and, and fascinating and inspiring because it makes me want to go read even more of this literature, which for, for some reason has been missing from my life recently because it still has kind of ripple effects and relevance to today. And, you know, I, the, there's a podcast that I actually narrated about prisons in Russia and their history. And so, and I mean, it, and it's for a, in English for a Western audience. So I think that there, this is a topic that still has such kind of uh, interest and relevance. And so I, I'm so glad that we have, you know, scholars like you who are, you know, going back and c- continuing to, you know, dig up and, and present us with all these incredible details uh, about this history. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This has been really great. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at